coming up on the Write Something Worthy podcast. As you said, some of my other books are sci-fi books. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that science fiction may not be fiction at all. It's just a reality that hasn't yet been discovered. Welcome to the Worthy Writer edition of the Write Something Worthy podcast. Each month, we bring you an informative interview that helps you to live your best life as an entrepreneur. And now, your host, Tanya Brockett. Today, I welcome author Jean Abel to the Write Something Worthy podcast. Jean began writing after retirement from school administration and being an Army colonel. He has since published an Amazon best-selling time travel novel and its sequel, and is in the editing process for a third book in the series. He is looking to work with a streaming company to create a series based on the theme. Jean's spicy romance novel called The End of Destiny has received many exciting reader comments and has five-star ratings on Amazon. It has a strong storyline with a touch of the supernatural as its protagonist, Jackie, seeks to spice up her sex life. His best-selling non-fiction book about UFOs, entitled What, If Anything, Is Out There, is having an enthusiastic reception, so people do still want to know the answer. Maybe some of the web telescope images that were just released will tell us. Oh, please join me today in my conversation with fiction and non-fiction author, Jean Abel. Welcome, Gene, to the Write Something Worthy podcast. Well, thank you. It is good to have you here today. And I am very interested to talk about a variety of your books because you have multiples, and that's going to be very important for um, all of our listeners to learn about. But I'm really interested in about your, your UFO book. You have a nonfiction book on UFOs. Tell us the title and tell us about that book. Why did it come to being? The title is What, If Anything, Is Out There. Um, I have always been interested in uh, science and uh, uh, extraterrestrials and all of that stuff. And lately, of course, there has been an awful lot of activity, uh, sightings, uh, we've had uh, activity with the federal government and testimony before Congress. We've got NASA that formed a group to uh, supposedly look into uh, these sightings. And so I decided I wanted to do some research and, and try to come up with as much what I thought was credible information as possible. So what I did is, first of all, I began by looking back. And when I mean looking back, I'm talking 20,000 years ago. And I found that there are definitely uh, verifiable evidence that drawings and, and images and things were created by our ancestors before at least recorded history that clearly demonstrate they saw something. And the something they seem to be uh, depicting on the walls of caves and making into little um, uh, images look very much like the extraterrestrials that we're talking about today. I then decided uh, to take a look at Roswell. 
because Roswell was the was really the beginning of the modern interest, I think, in, in UFOs, to be honest with you. And I tried to verify some of the facts that I found uh, in, in the book The Day After, uh, which is a, a really interesting uh, book by a Colonel Carzo who was stationed at the Pentagon. I was able to verify many of those facts and many of the people involved. I then turned to our astronauts and what they say they have seen in some of their trips, especially to the moon. Then I took a look at what I thought to be some of the most credible sightings that I could find. And finally, I tried to do to the best I could a military analysis of what it might mean, for example, if extraterrestrials landed on the White House and said, take me to your leader. Um, <laughs> I, I am a retired colonel. I did um, I did um, I graduate from the Army War College, and so I used that, that, that technique to try to take a look at what we're faced with here. There's no question in my mind that there are just too many verified incidents that this is just all a hoax. Now, I do want to warn people. However, there are hoaxes out there. For example, um, I uncovered uh, what looked like an astronaut on an ancient cathedral that was being cleaned in Spain. And it looked like an astronaut. Where some people jumped to the conclusion that, oh, this proves they were here then. But in reality, the technician that was cleaning the building added it himself in 1992. So you got to be careful. <laughs> so when you when you did the research and you were evaluating whether to write this book, were you looking at it from the perspective of someone who doubted the existence or somebody who was looking to prove the existence? Well, I sort of try to keep an open mind and try not to have a bias either way. Um, I was knew there was a lot of information out there, and so I wanted to sort through it before I. Uh, tried to come to any conclusion myself because I didn't want to have the bias to begin with. Okay. So what about, how did you come to decide to actually publish this? What made you say, oh, I, there are ideal readers out there that want to know the same information. Let me give it to them. How did you come well, to that were, decision? There was so much activity on Facebook, uh, in the news. And of course, um, uh, I have been publishing a number of books, as you said, with, uh, with Indigo River in, in, in Florida. And so I decided, uh, after I wrote this book, I decided to submit it to them. And they said, oh, yeah, we, we would love to publish this book. And so it became a reality. Uh, it, it's interesting, though. You know, um, as you said, some of my other books are sci-fi books. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that science fiction may not be fiction at all. It's just a reality that hasn't yet been discovered. And let me give you a few examples. If you recall um, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne, he wrote about nuclear-powered submarines before there was any such thing. 
50 years ago. The current development of laser weapons and energy-focused energy beam weapons are very much like Star Trek and like the death ray in old Flash Gordon uh, series. We obviously have the nuclear submarines. Uh, we are definitely looking into the possibility of time travel, and we've had such uh, outstanding people as uh, Einstein and Rosen who believe theoretically that time travel is possible. So my writing in the fiction area certainly relates to my book in the nonfiction area because I believe that many of these things may be realities we just haven't discovered yet. You know, it's so interesting. When you think about it, though, everything created was first just a thought. So if you can take a thought in your imagination and then bring it to life, you're doing the same thing as as authors who are envisioning their sci-fi world that they're creating in their books, and they're sometimes bringing those things to reality. You mentioned Star Trek earlier, and it was funny. When I used to work at a professional services firm, we had a video production studio. And our producer one one day brought in Gene Roddenberry, the executive producer of Star Trek. And so we had a conference. You know, we were in a conference room with them, and he was showing us clips and stuff and bloopers, which were absolutely hilarious from Star Trek. But when you think about the flip phone, you know, the beam me up, Scotty, we mm-hmm. had flip phones since then, right? The doors that slide open and slide back, we've got that. All of these things that were once just in our imagination and once depicted as if, oh, yeah, someday in somebody's future, this is going to be there. The whole George Jetson thing. We create what we think about. And so it is no wonder that we have so many incredible inventions and innovations when we allow our imaginations to bring those things into being. Well, and today, one of the things that we that is a reality is the rate at which we're learning is geometric. It's a it, it is it is growing more rapidly all the time, and that's probably because of our invention of things like the computer. And on the drawing boards right now is a thing called a quantum computer, which I don't pretend to understand. But according to what IBM has said, it can solve a problem that would take a thousand years of our fastest computer in 60 seconds. Now, these things are not yet practical realities, but they are experimenting with them. And when you think about it, the, the discoveries that we might find, the things that we might be able to do with the assistance of, of, of a device like the quantum computer and what we've already done with our existing computers, I think really uh, is fascinating. I also believe that maybe there are some people in history, uh, Darwin, uh, Da Vinci, uh, Einstein, Hawkins, and things, who for whatever reason had a glimpse into things and understanding of things that it will take us a long time to catch up to. Absolutely. I agree with that. Well, I think it's, I think it's terrific that you 
bring out the information and and the exploration in your current book, but also in your fiction work. I do have a question about that. You mentioned that you're looking at hopefully doing a, an episodic program with your fiction work. Tell me about yeah. that. What what makes you think about uh, your time travel series and how you can turn that into another medium from being your book? Well, the the books have gotten some some interesting comments. I've been very pleased from your comments about my books. And I think that a series could be could be made, uh, you know, hopefully like Star Trek, um, where we would first go back in time, which is what my first book depicts, going back, and take a look at, you know, uh, people trying to alter time and what that would mean. Uh, my second book basically has uh, things that we've done in our lifetime have an, a negative effect on the future. Not that we expected it would, but that's just the way it worked out. It caused people from the future to come back to our time to prevent us from doing these things. Then we go forward in the future to try to stop them from doing what they're doing. The third book, which is currently being edited, begins with a time travel scenario whereby China, in this case, does away with our time travel facility altogether, or tries to. But in my books, the actual time travel chamber is protected from changes in history for a period of time. So we go back and try to stop the Chinese from doing away with our um, time travel facility, and in so doing, create a catastrophic event that causes aliens step in and tell us very plainly that we're dealing with dynamite or worse, we must stop what we're doing. They give us a gift, and I won't go into that until the book is published, but it's an interesting gift. And this all together would produce, I believe, a series that would be uh, very interesting, ongoing, and because of this gift that I mentioned in the third book, could enter into a long-term series that could be attractive to all kinds of audiences. Mm-hmm. So we're very hopeful, and I'm working with uh, with someone right now to um, see if we can uh, get an audience before one of the screaming companies and see if we can interest them in beginning with a miniseries, see how it goes, and then move on from there. You know, the whole concept of episodes and episodic writing is becoming more and more pervasive right now, as I am hearing about Kindle Vela, for example, for fiction writers in particular, where you can write episodes almost, or just chapters, if you will, in a fiction book, but you release it chapter by chapter, episode Mm -hmm. by episode. And... So this lends itself to that kind of thing as well. But, of course, you don't want to shortcut your streaming service. I'd rather see you do that. That is a really exciting thing. Yeah, I, that, I think it would be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've always wondered how a writer gains credit 
for something they create. You know, you always see created by so-and-so, right? But they're not necessarily always the writer of that series or what have you. So I wondered how they gain any benefit from being the one who created it. You've got to navigate that now and structure not only how your content gets into those episodes, but how you position yourself to benefit yes. from that on an ongoing basis. Well, my, my intent would be to, to, you know, to form an LLC and then to work with directly with the streaming companies to interest them in episodes and provide them episodes on an ongoing basis, depending on how, how it works. But, you know, um, the, um, the difficulty in, in publishing is, is not in so much writing the book or even going through all the mechanics of, of um, publishing the book, per se. There are a number of companies out there that do a good job and help writers. Real trick is marketing, uh, especially if you're not a well-known person. And getting the book before the reading public or the listening public, in some cases I've had a couple of my books as audio books, uh, is, is the most difficult thing to do. Um, I have gotten some very strong rear comments from those who have read my books. Now what I'm trying to do is increase the, my visibility, the visibility of my books. Hopefully more people will read them and hopefully come to the same conclusion. Uh, I've tried to do this uh, by uh, hiring a company to promote my website. I put up a website that basically has all of my books. It has information about them. It has YouTubes. It has video uh, presentations. And it has excerpts from my books, as well as the comments that I've been receiving from my readers. Um, my website uh, is genepablebooks.com. That's G E N E. P A B E L B O O K S dot com. I also have a feature on that website that I encourage people who read my books or have questions to send me a link. If they send me a question, I get an email and I'll be more than happy to answer them. That's great. Thank you for providing your website. We will have a link in our show notes as well. So listeners can, if they can't write that down because they're listening in the car right now, they can uh, get back uh, to their phones later and they'll have that link in the show notes. So that's good. So in regards to marketing, that is a big challenge for a lot of authors. And one thing that authors need to understand is regardless of how you publish, you will need to market your own book. Whether you are going Simon & Schuster traditional, whether you are going Indigo hybrid, whether you are self-publishing, you have to market your book. It's your job as an author to get the word out. Tanya, Mm -hmm. I have two two three-inch binders practically full sitting on the top of my desk as we speak, full of the efforts that I am uh, undergoing to uh, market my book. Uh, our books, myself. Um, I have a, for instance, I have a book signing uh, on the 9th of, of July in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I've done a number of, of podcasts, including yours. Um, I am very active in, in Facebook, Instagram, and all that good stuff. And as I said, I've hired a professional 
to uh, promote my website and try to drive traffic to the website to s- see if people will be interested. Because, you know, I really, I, I've, I've written a, a, a books that are, are very, very different genres. This book that we're talking about, obviously, is a UFO book. It's nonfiction. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is present information so people can uh, maybe even look further before they decide whether they think there really are extraterrestrials, before they land in the White House and say, let me take me to your leader, and then there won't be any question. Um, I, I have written my uh, uh, series of the, of the sci-fi books, as we've talked about. And believe it or not, uh, my very first book, which was written 20 years ago, and which I had republished by Indigo River, is a spicy romance novel. It is as mm. different from my other books as it could be. It's called The Inn of Destiny. The Inn of Destiny uh, is a erotic um, romance novel. It's got a strong storyline. Believe it or not, it's got a touch of the supernatural. And it has gotten some very, very positive ratings, uh, five-star ratings on Amazon. And I am looking into a book-to-movie contract with that particular book. I've got very different genres for different audiences. It'll be interesting to see uh, which one of or any uh, really catch fire. Mark- marketing is very difficult, and it can get very expensive. That's the problem, especially for uh, an individual author that isn't you know, well-known, doesn't have an unlimited source of funds. Uh, there are some things you can do, but uh, as I said, the, the, the internet has been a big help. I think the uh, having a good website and trying to drive traffic to it, because you can put so much on that website. And, you know, some things on my website may be of interest to one person. Others might be of an interest to another, but it's all there. And um, we've got it designed in such a way when you click on the cover of the book, you get a whole raft of information uh, about that particular book or that series. So we're hoping that that's going to be effective. Good. And then you've got to actually drive the people to the website so that they can see it in the first place, right? And that's what, that's why I hired a professional, yes. Because that's mm. that's something that probably is a little beyond most people's capability. Very true. Now, do you have or do you use as part of your marketing, do you have any landing page that would offer a chapter, free chapter of your book or something like that? Well, Amazon does allow that. Yes, there, there, you can go to Amazon and you can read sections of my book. Uh, you can also listen to sections of the two books that have um, uh, audio books. And I will tell you, the, uh, the, the romance novel, for example, The Inner Destiny, that's one that I have made into, a, um, into an audio book. And I've just recently uh, agreed uh, with a company to uh, promote that audio book with the with the um, uh, association for the for the deaf for the blind. I'm sorry, the so- association for the blind, um, because uh, it, the audio book uh, uh, version is very interesting. And even though I've written the book and and, and read it many times, when I listen to my book as an audio book read to a read to by a very very talented voice actress a very different perspective in reading it. And so I'll be interested to see how the, the, the promotion with the Association uh, for the Blind 
uh, goes for um, uh, my romance novel. And I also have the audio version of my very first sci-fi book going back as a um, as an audio book. That's good. We just had a podcast on audiobooks recently and how many authors have not taken advantage of the opportunity to have their books set to audio. So mm-hmm. if you have a print book and you have an ebook, why not also have an audiobook, especially since the market is, is set to grow over the next mm-hmm. several years? Yeah, because there's really two groups of audiences that, that I believe listen to the audiobooks. One, people that are busy or traveling and whatever have you. And then, of course, people who are, who are, who are have, uh, sight impaired. Um, so you have two very different audiences there, both of which have a reason for um, listening to the audiobook as opposed to reading it. Absolutely. Everybody being constantly on the go these days, audio is becoming more and more attractive. To mm-hmm. a lot of people, I did get a yeah. very different perspective listening to the book that I wrote. It, it was it was an interesting experience. Yeah, I I did my my very first book way back in two thousand seven. I recorded on audiobook as well, and so that was way back then when you still sent it out as a CD rather than yeah. yep. <laughs> you know an audio file. You know. Um, there's a lot. There's been a lot of activity lately with the Department of Defense, as I mentioned, with possible UFO sightings and what are these things. Um, I went back all the way to 1960. The Brookings Institute was hired by the federal government to do a study as to what would happen if extraterrestrials became a reality. In other words, if people it couldn't be denied anymore they were here. And, of course, they recommended that uh, it might create some um, unrest, similar to what we saw when the War of the Worlds was read on radio, I think, in 1939. Um, And they recommended that some of this be kept secret. And I believe, I really do believe that the the governments of the world, just not ours, possibly others, have information that they have been reluctant to share. Um, the other interesting, one of the other interesting things which I cover in my book, as I mentioned, is the experience of our astronauts. There are four astronauts, at least, who have come forth since their time with NASA. They have flatly stated in their uh, activities in space, they saw extraterrestrials. One of the most interesting is that during the Apollo 11 landing, which was, of course, Neil Armstrong, there was a two-minute gap in the audio transmission back to NASA. Well, it turns out that that gap was caused by the fact that evidently uh, um, there was a a switch. Armstrong switched to an alternate frequency. They had two frequencies. One was basically for conversation with with, uh, NASA, which has been made public. And there was another frequency that generally was used for transmitting medical information. And evidently, uh, Armstrong switched to this alternate frequency. And a ham operator supposedly picked up this alternate frequency and recorded um, uh, Armstrong saying, 
my God. They're watching us. There's a huge ship on the rim of a, of a crater right in front of me. Now, the actual recording supposedly has somewhat been hard to come to, but um, the the uh, the gentleman that uh, was named Larry Basinger, and uh, he uh, in 1969 was interviewed, and it's very interesting that at least four astronauts, as I say, have flatly said they have seen extraterrestrials. And I stress in my book that, you know, the kind of person that becomes an astronaut is someone who is trained to observe, is highly thought of. And if we've got four of our astronauts flatly saying they saw these things, um, that's just not someone coming out of the blue and claiming that they shook hands with a gray. Right. But what about, are they actually, is it the spacecraft or whatever that they're seeing, the vessels in which they're traveling, or are they actually seeing these individual alien well, beings? I don't remember that they said specifically, except in the conversation with Armstrong, he mentioned both seeing aliens, extraterrestrials, whatever you want to call them, and mm -hmm. a ship right on the mouth of a crater in front of where he was looking from Freedom uh, the Eagle when it landed. Um, I also have um, a very interesting um, uh, sighting in my book that took place during the Vietnam War. Mm. And in this particular incident, there was a two uh, Navy patrol boats going up a Delta River, Mekong River, I believe it was. And they saw two space uh, saucer-type spaceships in front of them. They thought they were uh, in jeopardy and began firing upon these two saucers. Well, to their dismay, they found out that the rounds that they were firing toward them were turned around and came back and hit the bullets, um, one of which was sunk. They called in... Um, Help from the Air Force and two F fours were uh, were dispatched. They also saw these saucers uh, and fired air to air missiles at them. As soon as the air to air missiles were fired, the saucers disappeared and the air to air missiles with them. Now here's the real, real, and I, I this is just one incident that I want to you know concentrate on that I found. The very next day. Outside the mouth of this river was stationed a destroyer called the Hobart, which was Australia. Early in the morning, all of a sudden, the Hobart was hit. Several missiles. When the United States Navy did an autopsy and went to the Hobart, they found pieces from the missiles that struck the Hobart. When they tracked the serial numbers on some of the parts that they discovered, found that they were part of the missiles that were launched the preceding day by the Air Force at these two spacecraft. There was a very big after-action report and analysis by the Department of Defense. And as a result of that investigation and meeting, 
A directive was produced from the Department of Defense to the Air Force and the Navy pilots. Do not engage any UFOs in the future. These are documented incidents. This is not just hearsay. I cannot imagine why the Department of Defense would have issued such a directive if they didn't believe the evidence that I just described. So this, to me, is one of the most convincing sightings and incidents. It's more than a sighting. It was an interaction uh, with these UFOs. And I have, you know, provided about 20 of these interactions that I've seen or incidents, which I believed from my research were the most credible. As I said, I also pointed out that don't believe everything you read because some things are fabricated. Wow. Well, I mean, I have to say from the get-go, why are we firing at something just because we don't know what it is? Um, well, but you know, if you were a young lieutenant and you were in Vietnam and you saw something like that as startling, uh, you might think it was threatening. And I, I can understand how they could have fired a machine gun at it and so forth. I mean, that's the, I'm like I say, I'm a retired colonel. I, I understand that 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 certainly could happen. Yeah, doing war for sure because yeah, you don't know what the source is. Yeah, that's right. You didn't know. Maybe it was just a, a fancy new uh, uh, device that the North Vietnamese had. Um, exactly. but, the, but the but the firing on the Hobart the next day, the tracing of those ports, uh, it's hard to say. It's all BS. Yeah. Really wow. That's really interesting. So how so much are, time did you spend researching before you, you know, wrote the book and then got it published? Well, I had had some, I had had done some research before, and I had a pile of papers, and you know, and then I spent about eh, about eight, eight months, I guess, um, both looking at the oral research that I had done in incidents, and also bringing it up to date because I do go all the way up until 2021, um, and I, I even looked at things like, for instance, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever heard of Majestic 12. Majestic 12 was created by uh, by uh, uh, President Truman. Uh, who was presented with the uh, information from Roswell. And Majestic 12 were 12 of the most, um, at the time, important intelligence and military leaders in our in our country. And they produced information that was so sensitive that it was designated as beyond top secret. It was for the eyes of the president only. And... Um, you know, I wanted to bring some of these things to the attention of a reader so they, again, kind of stimulate their thought. But when you have people like Harry Truman um, forming Majestic 12, you had a report filed by, um, by Carter when he was governor that he saw a UFO in Georgia, and he filed a, a written report prior to becoming president. And when he ran for president, President Carter, or Jimmy Carter before he was president, uh, said he would release any and all information about UFOs to the general public. Guess what? He became president. Had to admit that 
he did not think he could keep that promise because there were some things that were just too sensitive. And he never did fulfill that commitment that he made running for president. But when you have people at this level, you have astronauts. Um, when you have things that have been verified by physical things like the serial numbers on the missile, um, I think it, it, really, it really makes you think that this may be real. The other issue that I found uh, in my research is that they have plotted, they meaning other governments and our government, have plotted all of the sightings, and there's thousands of them, tens of thousands of sightings that have been going on over the last 30, 40 years. This is an interesting reality. About 80% of all the reported sightings apparently are over nuclear facilities. By that, I mean either nuclear power plants or reactors or nuclear weapons facilities. That's interesting. <laughs> so, you know, I packed this all into my little book. Um, I hope people will read it and it will stimulate their thought to you know, maybe look even further um, and then come to some conclusion on their own uh, uh, before, like I say, they land and we, we don't have to have any speculation anymore. But we, we definitely, if they are real, and I believe they are personally, one thing wow. is true. They have a knowledge and a technology far beyond ours. Because how that seems in the to world, be the speculation all the time. How would they travel the distances they might have to travel to get here? I have no idea. And then Obviously, enter our atmosphere when we have such a hard time getting back into our own atmosphere. I mean, their technology would be would be far far in excess of anything anything that we would we would have. And of course, as I point out in my military analysis, if in fact we if they became belligerent, either directly or indirectly, um, we definitely have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> wow, you know what was interesting when you were talking about the missile thing, it made mm -hmm. me think then about. You know how a missile can reappear um, and be turned back on us uh, the next day. It made me think yep. about your time travel concept and and how time is not set or stationary as we would like to believe it is, or that it's not linear. And so the thought that the missile goes into, you know, goes somewhere on one day and then returns back on another day. I, I don't know. It just made me think about your whole time travel concept as well. And well, Einstein, Einstein, believed, Einstein believed that there was such a thing as time travel. He believed that there possibly are other dimensions because there are two very distinct different theories about extraterrestrials. One is that they're in our dimension and they have found a way in which to uh, travel the great distances to, to, to go from wherever they come from to, to Earth. That's one theory, okay? There's a second theory, that there are many dimensions that coexist at the same time. And Einstein also, in his theory of relativity, says that that is a distinct possibility. So is it possible that some intelligent life has found a way to move between dimensions 
so that they're not traveling physical distances, but they're moving from one reality to another. I literally just saw a movie yesterday. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm-hmm. It addresses the metaverse, the multiverse, the fact that there are different realities occurring concurrently mm-hmm. that you can interact with and travel between. So I, I just find that interesting that you talk about that today. Well, that, that's, that's going to be in my third book. That's, that's going to be one of the, one of the elements in, in my third book, The Alien Step In, which is the name of the book. Um, we hope to release it later this year, beginning of next year. It's in the editing stage right now with Indigo River. Uh, but it's, uh, it, 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 to me, it's fascinating. And as I say, I really do believe that much of science fiction is just reality uh, that hasn't yet been discovered. Well, I appreciate you bringing that to us. And also bringing to us the understanding that an author has work to do, right? It's not just a cakewalk. You Mm -hmm. can uh, create something uh, powerful from your own mind and and put that onto the page for the rest of us to enjoy. But there's work in getting that to us. The marketing aspect that what has to happen, the potential for negotiating other alternatives for getting that out into the world, the idea of your episodes, the TV streaming, book to movie, all of that is wonderful for authors to consider and think about when they're writing their books. That it's not just a one and done kind of concept, right? Well, and you know, I've been very fortunate uh, in this. I, I have a, a friend who is a best-selling author, and he publishes under the name of M. David. Okay. And Maury uh, um, is the one that brought me to uh, Indigo River, for example. And he has been a very big help in, in, in working with me and suggesting some things to help market my books. He's in the process of uh, trying to uh, complete a, a movie from one of his books. That's right. And Maury is awesome. I do thank him for his help because when I wrote the books, um, I have had no experience in marketing. Now, Maury has some marketing experience, and he has some very interesting ideas, and it's been a big help. But you could have written uh, another Gone with the Wind, and enough people don't read it. Well, it's just uh, there. And, you know, one of the other things, obviously, when you – for example, on my, on my streaming series, you know, if a series becomes – um, popular, then you have other merchandising opportunities. I mean, just think of all the things that were made from Star Trek beyond just the series. Action figures, games, posters. Um, one of the things that, 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 and it's in the distant future that, that I have had discussions with some people about, is the possibility of turning some of my sci-fi ideas into video game. The other idea that I have, and that I'm definitely working on with my third book, is one of the one of the things in my third book, the way in which the alien captain who makes contact with us on Earth uh, authenticates and does what the things that he does. He has a thing that I've called a dicta ring. And it is a ring. It's a device that he has. It's attuned to him only. And it enables him to activate and do the various things that he does and authenticate the, uh, the authenticity of the order coming from him. So I've had this ring designed by a person, uh, that uh, coin carrier, um, 
And uh, my idea is that if the series and the book takes off, then I would look into the fabrication of the dictoring because every kid needs one of those. Wow, for sure. You want to have merch. And, (laughs) you know, it made me think of the blockchain when you were talking about it being authentic uh, just to them. Um, Maybe NFTs are in your future as well. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Yeah, we've got, uh, we started uh, producing some author merch for the Write Something Worthy podcast as Mm -hmm. well. So we've got writesomethingworthy.com forward slash author merch. And it's things that, you know, authors uh, tend to want to have or wear or whatever while they're writing, while they're working, coffee mugs and and book bags and things of that nature. And the same thing for anything that comes out of our books and our book ideas is that there are things that our readers may want to be able to hold on to or make real for themselves or what have you. So your ring and, you know, a lot of different other concepts that may come out of your time travel series could become good merch ideas. So one of the things that I want authors to get from this that is it's not just the one book that you write that can make an impact and generate sales for you. It is the outgrowth of that. It's the repurposing of that. It's the print book and the ebook and the audio book and the TV series and the episodes and the book to movie and the merchandise. All of that can come from an author's experience if they open themselves up to that. Well, so that, I that, appreciate that, you sharing correct. that. And what, what I did in the second of my, of my sci-fi books and that will be expanded in the third is we're including illustrations in the book. Now, that does two things. Number one, it will help the reader envision what we're talking about. Because as part of the copyright, it also then provides for action figures, posters, and all those kinds of things uh, as part of the illustrations in the book. So we've gotten some good comments about the illustrations in Kidnappers from the Future, which is the second of my sci-fi books. And we're going to expand that into the third uh, book. Uh, which will include that dicta ring that I talked about, and of course the image of the uh, of the aliens. I'm trying to create my own image of the gray that I envision, so that if we can uh, establish that as a as a as a unique um, uh, a unique entity, why it could wind up being an action figure? Who knows? Or a whole mm-hmm. series of them. So that was a, you know you're right, and 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 that's that. It depends what the author wants to do. You know, some people just want to write a book to say that they've written a book and see their name in print, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if you really want to, to promote yourself and if you want to have multiple books and you want to do some of the other things that we talked about, it does take a lot of effort, work, and some investment. There's no question about that. Indeed. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Can you remind our listeners where they can find information about you and your books? There's a whole bunch of ways. You can Google me, Gene Piable. You can Google my book titles. Uh, But the best way, I think, is to go to my website. And my website is genepablebooks.com. G-E-N-E-P-A-B-E-L-B-O-O-K-S. So thank you so much, Gene, for visiting with us today. I really appreciate your input and your 
insight and your wonderful information. And we will make sure that your website is in our show notes so everybody can get a hold of you and follow you going forward. And I wish you the best with well, thank your you very much, streaming. I, I enjoyed very much talking with you. Oh, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it as well. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Worthy Writer edition of the Write Something Worthy podcast. If you'd like to know more about today's guest or even to reach out to them, you can find all of their information in our show notes at writesomethingworthy.com. 